0: to tour guide tell all your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share the often scandalous interesting and darker side of american history i'm becca i'm rebecca and we're
1: the rebeccas
0: see sometimes (laughs) we really nail it so i am very excited because it is almost thanksgiving which is one of my favorite holidays because i love food obsessed with food big Saint. on food Heart's so Saint. any holiday where the food is the center point I love but also Thanksgiving is perfect for historians because it is full of historical inaccuracies and urban legends and myths so we get to basically tell people well actually all day long which yes. we love
1: which we do love although can it really be an urban legend if they're in the wilderness
0: <laughs> that's a
1: point it's to a, think about a rural first. legend oh, yes. <laughs> a
0: wooded legend a Puritan legend. I don't know. (laughs) So yeah, we're going to be talking about the Mayflower Pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving, what we know about it, what we don't know, why we think it is the way it is. And this is, this is personal for you and I.
1: Yes, it really is. We're both descended from Mayflower passengers, different ones. (laughs)
0: <laughs> We're sadly not cousins. I know. Uh, yeah, I descend from William White. He and his wife Susanna came over. Susanna was pregnant on the Mayflower trip, which is just so intense to me. So she had a little son, Resolved, who is who my family descends from. But she was pregnant on that whole thing and gave birth, Peregrine, to the first baby born in the new in the new colony as it were so like yes she got off the boat and gave labor and then William White was super ill and he like signed that Mayflower Compact and then he died (laughs) so he did not he's not well known because he did
1: not stick around who's your who's your ancestor I am descended from Mary Chilton she comes over as a kid she's like 12 with her parents James and Susanna who obviously I'm descended from them too but James apparently was quite elderly and he did not survive that first winter and apparently neither did his wife. And so Mary Chilton, who legend has it, was the first European woman to set foot in North America. She was like the first girl off the boat. She was 12 and she is eventually gonna marry the brother of a fellow Mayflower passenger, Edward Winslow. So Edward Winslow becomes the first uh, governor of Plymouth colony. She marries his brother, John, and they have like a thousand children.
0: Yeah, they weren't kidding around.
1: No, these people had babies. And one of their daughters, Susanna, marries a guy named Robert Latham. And, you know, several generations later, here I am.
0: So listeners, if you're ever wondering how Anglo-Saxon are the Rebeccas, (laughs) this is, we come by our WASP ways. Very honestly. The right way. Very honestly. honestly. And I will just say, as a small little caveat, I once wrote in an elementary school report about how my ancestor was on the Mayflower, and my teacher called me a liar and said I had made it up. And boy, my mother and grandmother, the genealogists, were not
1: happy. But they were not. <laughs> That's unclear.
0: So you can imagine me coming to school with like paperwork
1: and documentation. <laughs> my family didn't believe me when I told them that I'd uncovered this. They're like, No, we're not. I was like, Yeah, no, we really are
0: <laughs> We're really that white yeah, guys we, really we did it. Mm-hmm.
1: We're not alone, though, so that's okay. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but there are surprisingly large number of Americans that are descended from Mayflower passengers.
0: So let's get into it. Why is November, the third week of November, why do we talk about the Mayflower and the Pilgrims?
1: Why does it fascinate us so much? I wonder that a lot. They weren't the first. Nowhere close to the first. They weren't even the first English colonists to come over to the New World. That honor belongs in Jamestown in Virginia. There had been excursions up and down the coast for decades. The Spanish had been in Florida for a while at this point. Why the pilgrims? Why are we so obsessed with them? I don't know. I wonder a lot about this. I think because there's some sort of mythic idea that we descend. This is our founding moment as Americans that we just started from this civilization. Jamestown kind of has its problems John Smith is a little bit weird and, you know, they, a lot of them starve and that's not really great, but you know, the Puritans are lovely, pure, happy people and they create this civilization based on a, you know, in a, what they call the wilderness and it kind of lasts. And there's also this cute as a button story about the first Thanksgiving, which is, we're going to talk about a little bit. Not much of it is true. But I think it's a nice story and it's a good sort of unity moment. And the other thing I think is the Mayflower Compact. We've adopted that as sort of the forerunner of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So that's why I think we still talk about them.
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, Jamestown is, and certainly, you know, I, I went to college in Virginia. I've spent most of my adult life living in and around Virginia. And, you know, Virginians really, they're not wrong to be like, Jamestown was here first. And why don't we get more attention outside of Virginia? But I think, like you said, the fits and starts, the starvation, the struggles, and there wasn't that document. There wasn't sort of this Key document that everyone gathered around that I think really sets the Mayflower apart and sets the pilgrims apart. I will also give some insight a little later in the episode as to why I think we cling so much to the Mayflower story, but I'll get to that a little bit later. But you're right, I think a huge part of it is it is this great story of these pure of heart people coming across the ocean, battling the elements surviving in the wilderness and then they have this great unity moment where they sit down with with the native people who they have come to civilize and they all eat turkey and
1: i feel like part of the appeal of the pilgrims is that there's the the possibility in this moment that things could have gone differently with the native americans like that we could have really rather than attack and slaughter them we could have been somewhat of a you know, there could have been cooperation more than there was. And I feel like the Pilgrims kind of represent that sort of lost idea, which is also not really historically accurate at all. But it seems like a nice tableau. Plus they wore funny hats and kids like to make funny hats.
0: We love funny hats. Yeah, we like funny hats. So yeah, let's talk about who the Pilgrims were. Because I'll be honest, I'm from the South. And you're from, I feel like, Pilgrim country. Because when I think of the Puritans, you sort of think of black tights, funny hats, very, very serious religious zealots
1: can confirm that's that part is real uh i don't know about the tights though um the name so let's start with the name they did not call themselves pilgrims that name was given to them like 300 years later they would not have recognized themselves as pilgrims and in fact i think they'd be a little insulted by being called pilgrims in their sort of religious conception of the world the idea of a pilgrim has a very specific meaning It is someone who goes on a pilgrimage which is something that protestants do not do catholics go on pilgrimages protestants do not because they don't venerate saints and things like that so i feel like just calling them the pilgrims sort of sends us immediately in the wrong direction they would have called themselves either saints or separatists and that begs the question separate from what well (laughs) They wanted to be separate from the Puritan church. So the Puritans, we've all heard their reputation and a lot of it is true. The Puritans were kind of joyless. They are going to take the Anglican church, the Church of England, which still exists today, and they are going to want to purify it, which is where the name comes from. The name was kind of coined with scornful intent, but the Puritans kind of embrace it and they are very strict as far as their interpretation of doctrine, as as far as their worship of God, they have this reputation for being fun suckers. They close down all the theaters in London, like they're really just not particularly fun. They're very strict about their religious adherence. They take it very, very seriously. So that's the Puritans. And the Separatists, the Pilgrims, were more conservative than that.
0: I can't even imagine what that is like, uh, yeah. like in practice. <laughs> right.
1: So they think the separatists, the, the, what we call the pilgrims, they thought the Puritans were a little too loosey-goosey. Having too much fun, too, too much wild. Fun, going too crazy. And so they want to separate from them because they want to be even stricter and more closely aligned to God's word and sort of live an even more godly life. Which is just insane to me. And they, so that's the the where they come from. That's what their idea is. They want to purify the Church of England even more than the Puritans, and they are sort of they're zealots. You use the correct word. We don't like to discuss that because the Pilgrims are give us warm and fuzzies, but the truth is they're basically religious zealots. They don't want religious freedom. The idea we have of the Pilgrims is that they came here for religious freedom. Not really. So much. No. I mean, they wanted to worship according to their own beliefs. That part is true. But they also came here to isolate themselves, too. They wanted isolation from all other religious inputs, all other society, everybody else. They didn't want anybody else breaking into the shell of their religious community, which zealot is one word for The word I would use is cult, I feel like. That's the word I would go with.
0: It feels a little culty. Maybe that's where the tights came in. Yeah,
1: maybe that's where the tights came in. That could be. I like that. So it also is worth mentioning, they're not the only believers of this type in England at this time. There are the Puritans, which are the overwhelming majority of the Church of England. And then there are different branches of separatists or pilgrims. We just happen to know the group that comes over to Massachusetts or what becomes Massachusetts. But there's a few of them. And they're originally going to go to the Netherlands instead of staying in England. And the reason they go to the Netherlands, they specifically go to Leiden. And they are going to go because they really are concerned, again, with how lax the Puritan church is. And you got to ask yourself, this is the thing I, I think about a lot with the Puritans. If the Puritans are too relaxed... How far off the, like, crazy train have you strayed? If they're too loosey-goosey for you, yeah, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> just, I'm just saying. And so they're going to go to the Netherlands for a while, and they form a community in Leiden, and they're they, what they really want is to isolate themselves. And their children and their entire community. The Netherlands has a long history of religious toleration. And so they figure this will be the best place for them. No one will bother them. They'll be away from the Puritans. They'll be away from England. They can have their own separate identity. And the Dutch are pretty relaxed about religious matters. So the Dutch will leave them alone. It'll be great. And then they get there. And... They don't speak the language.
0: That's a that's that's a barrier.
1: Which is a barrier, right? And they don't these are not particularly wealthy people, so they have to have jobs. And it's tough to get a job in a language that you don't speak. Particularly, I would imagine, when you're very strict about your religious observance, and so therefore there are a lot of you know, you can't work on Sundays, you can't work certain days of the week. So I would imagine it's difficult to sort of hold down a job, but mainly the language thing. And they start to get a little annoyed at how tolerant the Dutch are. So they go there for tolerant, uh, religious tolerance. And then the Dutch are too tolerant because their kids are coming into encounters with Dutch children and they're much more relaxed. And this is really bad because they're getting these outside ideas.
0: They want truly isolation. They want
1: true isolation. And so rather than like relax a little bit, rather than embrace the slightest bit of religious toleration or outside input, the pilgrims, the separatists, are going to freak out and decide to sail across the ocean. So basically they'd rather go to a wilderness than embrace any sort of tolerance. So they do. The first ship they go on, called the Speedwell, leaves from Plymouth, England. And starts taking on water, like barely outside of land. And so they're like, wait a minute, we can't sail across an ocean in a boat that's taking on a lot of water. So they turn back (laughs) and they're going to move all their stuff over to a ship called the Mayflower. Because of this, they're going to leave a little late. They leave in August, which is fine because August is a lovely time of year, but crossing takes months. And so this is going to put you... In late August, early September, is going to put you in the new world at the beginning of November, which is cold and not really ideal.
0: And well past time for planting. I just want to mention about the Mayflower because I remember going and seeing this as a teenager. We were like road tripping and my parents really wanted to see it. And when I saw the replica of the – today it's a replica that you can visit in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And it is mind-boggling the size of it. And I mean because it is small. It is from end to end, not even deck space, but the full length of the ship, no more than 110 feet. And there were about 135 people, which if you do the math, that is less than one square foot per person. I know people were smaller then. I know people were not as tall or wide, but they also had supplies and you're like, okay, where the supplies go? They had people, they had pregnant women, three pregnant women, one of which was my ancestor, which is sort of crazy. But the number of people crammed on that ship, if you have not seen it and you get a chance to go see it, it really is mind blowing. And the fact that they mostly survived the passing is mind blowing to me. Because that ship does not look like it can stand up to a storm, which is also what you're getting into leaving in August and crossing the Atlantic is storm season.
1: And they're also, like, the Mayflower, the actual real Mayflower, is scrapped for parts three years later. Like, it's at the end of its life as a ship. So it's, I mean, I don't want to say rickety, because that gives you the wrong idea. But it's like, you know. It's already made crossings. It's already done things. It's done things. It's been around (laughs) a little bit, you know. And I don't know much about sailing, but... I know for sure that like a ship towards the end of its life, it's kind of like having the brakes on your car at the end of their life. Do you really want to take that chance? I don't know.
0: So I think we sometimes think of them in this grand sailing ship, though, and you think about pictures. And it's really, really small, for the, especially for the number of yeah, people. Yeah, this
1: is not the QE2. Right. This is not the QE2, folks. This isn't the this isn't luxury passage. So there's 102 of them on the ship about half of them are going to be separatists. So they're not all pilgrims. Some of them just want a new start in the new world. Some of them are actually the guys who are sailing the ship and they've got a lot of stuff with them. The pilgrims are moving their whole lives. So they have chests full of their books and their writings. They have bedding. They have a few animals. They've got the people. Most of the separatists are going to spend their time in the middle hold, which The bottom of the ship is going to be where all the like heavy stuff, like the uh, heavy supplies and things. But the middle hold, there's no air, a lot of air there. It's dark because you're, there's the deck on top of you. And if you think about it, this isn't like going on a cruise ship. They don't have bathroom facilities, your food, you have what you're going to eat. You got to bring with you the whole time. So imagine two months in this airless chamber on this boat in storms across the cold Atlantic ocean. And I feel like this is part of the, one of the things about the pilgrims that we really grab onto is it's just such a feat of like daring and bravery. Like the idea that you're literally going into almost the complete unknown. I mean, they knew, so a little bit about the new world, but they're gonna start this whole new community with basically what they can fit in this 110 foot boat. And that's it. And three of the women are pregnant. And not like, oh, I just found out yesterday. Far along in their pregnancy when they leave. One of them is so pregnant there she's going to give birth on the ship. That is a hard no. That's no. They name him Oceanus, which I love. But no, no. That's a hard no. You can't boil water. Can you imagine a less hospitable place? You have no privacy? Nope. Hard pass. The other two, including Becca's ancestor, gave birth pretty soon after making landfall.
0: So, yeah, she was definitely pregnant before she left. She was well aware that she was pregnant and made the choice to go, which is impressive,
1: but scary. And I'm sorry. If my husband was like, hey, we're going to go across the ocean, and I was heavily pregnant, I'd be like, no, you are going. I'm, no, I'm not going. You're crazy. No, thanks. So, take some two months. And the there is a myth so that the idea some people are confused that did they mean to go to Massachusetts, did they mean to go to Virginia? You don't blow off course from heading to Virginia and end up in Massachusetts. That's, there's a distance of several hundred miles there. They weren't that stupid. They may have initially wanted to go to Virginia, or at least some of them seem to want to have gone to Virginia. It is a touch unclear, but the pilgrims, at least the separatists, they wanted to go to Massachusetts. They are aware of Massachusetts. There have been English fishermen up and down the coast in that area for years. So they wanted to go where they ended up, not Virginia. They are going to hit Cape Cod first, what's now P-Town, the sort of edge of Cape Cod. And they do have, to this day, a very large monument in the middle of P-Town for the pilgrims. That's there where they first end up. But the problem with Cape Cod is it's basically a gigantic sandbar. And stuff's hard to grow. And there's no real hospitable port. Like, sounds really fun. If you go there, you should go there. It's a lot of fun.
0: I, went, I actually went to a wedding last year in the Before Times at the Pilgrim Monument in, in P-Town. And I was like, oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> That's so amazing. Uh, anyway, they, it's, P-Town's very cool, but not a great harbor.
0: No. And you really, it's not meant for farming.
1: No, it's not. I mean, it's basically sand. That's basically what Cape Cod is. And so they're going to sail around a bit and they eventually find what's now Plymouth Harbor. They are able to get the boat closer into the harbor. It's calmer, partly because of Cape Cod. The arm of Cape Cod sort of shelters it a little bit. And they arrive, and it's now toward the end of November, which... Even in England is not the most hospitable weather, weather, but particularly in New England, the end of November is not great. And so they realized that whether they had wanted to go to Virginia or not, and it seems like some of the adventurers wanted to go to Virginia and the separatists wanted to stay in Massachusetts, but whether they wanted to or whatever their designs were, by this point in the year, you're pretty much stuck. You're not going anywhere else. So they are going to sign something called the Mayflower Compact. And by they, I mean, obviously the white men. Women are not signing this, And it's been very much romanticized. It's going to be, there's 41 of them that are going to form basically a body politic. They're going to, and it's been said that it is the beginning of democracy in the United States. It was and it wasn't. The Mayflower Compact, you got to take a stretch to get, get yourself to the Declaration of Independence. This is not a contractual governance of equals. This is basically, we're going to work together or else we're all going to die. That's basically what the Mayflower Compact was. So I think it's a little overhyped, and I and the reason I think that is because at the time it wasn't a big deal. It doesn't become Mayflower Compact doesn't become something that we talk about until like three hundred years later. Jefferson does not talk about this when he writes the Declaration of Independence. This is not even on his radar.
0: This is not referenced by Madison for the Constitution. This is not not at all. So Calvin Coolidge, three hundred years after the Mayflower landing said this about it. The compact which they signed was an event of the greatest importance. It was the foundation of liberty based on law and order, and that tradition has been steadily upheld. They drew up a form of government that has been designated as the first real constitution of modern times, which I would say the Magna Carta begs to differ. Um, But, um, you know, so we start to see this kind of overblown romanticizing of the Mayflower Compact, I think, like you said, about 300 years later at a point where the United States is sort of on the dawn of the 20th century. Yes.
1: So at any rate, they are going to sign the Mayflower Compact and they start building houses in what's now Plymouth. And if you've never been to a plantation, it's okay. It's kind of cute, you know. You get to see the little houses, living history. Yeah, it's very nice. And their their contact with the Native Americans is not really as joyous as portrayed in our history books. There's a lot going on that the some of which the Pilgrims don't fully understand. The Native Americans in those in that area are the Wampanoag. And they're led by a a chief who should be much more famous than he is. His name is Massasoit. And he is really an interesting character. They call themselves the people of the first light, which I love. Uh, And the area they they call, what we know as Massachusetts, they call it the Dawnland. I love that. Isn't that nice? The Dawnland. And they have just been decimated a few years earlier by a pretty significant plague. They don't obviously understand germ theory at all. That's hundreds of years ahead of them. All they know is that there has been this illness and a lot of people died. But it seems to them that their neighbor, their neighbors, the Narragansetts, did not lose anywhere near as many people. So they're kind of stuck. They need allies. And so Massasoit is stuck in this weird place where he wants to try to make an alliance with these new people, these sort of white people who come over from Europe, because he needs their support. But he doesn't want to reveal that to them either because that seems like a bad idea. So it's a really interesting interplay of things that are happening. And the Separatists, the Pilgrims, are not especially hospitable to them either. The pilgrims seem to have known about this plague. They talk about how it was very beneficial. And obviously, the pilgrims, because they're the pilgrims, they think this is the hand of God preserving this whole wilderness for them. So there's a lot of things that are kind of playing around with this interaction.
0: Um, and I, I should say, first of all, that at the point the pilgrims land, We've had Native people on this continent for at least 12,000 years, per Native tradition from the dawn of time, but certainly uh, through evidence, archaeological evidence, 12,000 years. This is not their first interaction with Europeans. There have been other European travelers, so they have had to interact with Europeans, some of whom have been willing to trade, some of whom have not, some of whom have been hostile, some of whom have not. Some of these Wampanoag speak English already, know some English, some of them already are starting to suspect that these diseases come from these men coming from this place. So we have this idea, I think often, that this is the first real coming together of Europeans and Native Americans, and it's by no means the first. And I think a lot of what is shading the way that he approaches pilgrims is these previous interactions with Europeans that have been sort of happening piecemeal for for the last several years. Yes. Yes.
1: And the other thing that I would imagine throws off Massasoit big time is the pilgrims have these sticks that fire things, what we call guns. The Native Americans didn't know what a gun was. They you know, and the pilgrims have a lot of them. They're bringing over these new animals and it's all very confusing. And Massasoit doesn't quite know whether to help them or not. Do they mean us ill or not? And so for a while, the first winter the pilgrims and the Indians sort of, shadow box around each other they don't they kind of engage but not really and it takes until that next spring and i think Massasoit, the other thing i think he was waiting to figure out is are they going to make it here because the pilgrims arrive at the end of november they start setting up their houses but it gets cold really quickly they have not planted anything they have the dwindling supplies from the, the ship but they have to figure out how to feed themselves and it's a rough winter like that first winter in massachusetts was as bad as advertised they lose about half of their number in that first winter and it is so cold and they are so starving that they can't bury the bodies like they don't have enough calories in their diet to bury the bodies and again these are very religious people you can imagine how awful and that must have been to not be able to pay proper respects to their dead it's a big deal this whole first winter is not at all overblown it was really terrible and Eventually, Massasoit decides he's going to make contact, because at this point, the pilgrims are really weak. So they they need allies. And he brings with them the one person that everyone has heard of in this story, which is Squanto. You've heard of Squanto.
0: Best known, I think, for being a translator, for having, having the ability to communicate fairly easily with the English, or with English speaker speaking Europeans.
1: So Squanto is himself fascinating. First of all, he's known as the friendly Indian. Like that's sort of the like shading he gets in all of the textbooks, but his name was not Squanto. First of all, that's a nickname. The name that he introduces himself with is Tisquantum, which is also probably not the name he was given at birth. In that part of the Northeast, apparently, the name Tisquantum means rage, and particularly like a religious rage. And so basically, Squanto is walking up to the pilgrims and introducing himself as, hi, I'm the wrath of God. Like, that's what his name means. So he's clearly like You're trying to, if you're introducing yourself to people that way, you're trying to show them something. You know, he's trying to front, essentially. So he's kind of an interesting character. He's not from this era. He is not Wampanoag. He's actually from further north. Was at one point kidnapped, brought to Spain. He makes his way to England for a while. He learns English and then manages to get his way back, only to find out that his entire village had been decimated by the same plague. And so he makes his way south. And he is sort of allied to Massasoit and the Wampanoags, but he is definitely not of them. Uh, And so it's a very uneasy sort of alliance. Um, But he's going to throw his lot in with the pilgrims. He remains with them for the rest of his life. And what he's going to do is basically help them to not starve which is nice of him, I think. He's going to uh, show them planting techniques. He introduces them to corn. That part actually is real. And the pilgrims are so excited, they invite him to live and he does live for the rest of his life. He's actually buried in the cemetery where the first pilgrims are buried. So he kind of hangs out there for a little while, but this brings us to the first Thanksgiving.
0: So as I believe, right, that the pilgrims have such a bounty thanks to the native help that they call their native buddies over and they say, hey, Squanto and our other native friends, come sit and enjoy turkey and pumpkin pie and yams and rolls and whatnot. (laughs) And I assume you're going to tell me that's not how it went down.
1: No, not no. So it was three days, not one. First of all, it was a harvest festival, essentially. And this is not something that is unknown at all to the Native Americans. Like, they have had harvest festivals for hundreds of years. The pilgrims are so thrilled with themselves that they managed to, like, plant enough stuff to survive that they're going to make this big feast. And they don't invite the Indians at all. That actually is not true. They set off cannon. To celebrate their successful harvest. And the Indians are like, hey, what are you guys doing?
0: <laughs> we keep hearing this giant boom.
1: Right, like what's happening over here? And so the Indians literally come to investigate and they're invited in. And the idea, like there's this so super like patronizing idea that the Indians had never seen so much food. And the tables groaned with the bounty of the harvest that the, pur- the pilgrims had you know, undertaken and all this. And that's, like, laughable. I mean, all of the foods that they ate were Indian foods, all of them. The yams, the turkey, pumpkin, corn, none of that stuff is in England at all. It's all American. So this is all stuff that they had no experience with. So the idea that the, like, Indians had never seen any of this stuff and had never seen this much food in one place.
0: Also, and let's be honest if you have been to any part of this part of Massachusetts it's coastal they had fish they had things like clams and oysters and lobsters things that were that you could get off the coast
1: tons of seafood (laughs) so much and this is the part about Thanksgiving which is a holiday I love but it's also like super lassist and waspy and like oh like these pilgrims came and they civilized the natives and so
0: how does it go ultimately for for the Pilgrims and for the Wampanoag?
1: Not great. <laughs> Not great. The Pilgrims are going to be joined pretty quickly, a few years later, by m- more Puritans. So they are going to come to what's now Boston, uh, sort of up the coast slightly. And by, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, there are settlements kind of all up and down the Massachusetts area. And Massasoit is um, nervous I think would be a good <laughs> a good description. He's really a little bit nervous about uh, all of this incursion in his land. He's also like the Puritans and the Pilgrims figure out pretty quickly that they can sort of play the natives off each other. They figure out that the Narragansett are different from the Massachusetts who are different from the Abenakis who are different from you know the Wampanoag and they feel it and then they start to like play them all off each other and it doesn't go very well. Uh, the Wampanoag are going to be almost completely wiped out, uh, within a few decades, maybe a century. Uh, they fight King Philip's war, which is going to be in the late 1670s. Uh, Massasoit's son is King Philip. He's Anglicized uh, and they lose this war pretty badly. Uh, and it's the, there are not too many Wampanoags left. Like it is, they almost get completely obliterated. The Native Americans, Massasoit, I feel like, is on this interesting edge of history because he knows there's more coming and he knows there's nothing he can do about it. And that's, I think, sort of where he is. And he's from a, operating from a position of weakness.
0: And, and yet somehow I find him fascinating because he managed to build really meaningful bonds with some of these Europeans becoming exceptionally close to people, including people like Roger Williams, you know, where he had meaningful partnerships, allied ships that he, you could see where he was really trying and really trying to make this work in a new world, but also this awareness that this is going to go badly. And we see that with what happens with his son, who essentially tries to stop stop the European incursion with King Philip's War. Which we'll just have to do a whole other episode on.
1: Yeah, King Philip's War. King Philip's War is one of those interesting things. Metacomet, that's his son's uh, Indian name. King Philip's War is one of those interesting, like, little areas of history that we don't talk about when nobody knows about
0: yeah we kind of go from pilgrims to like 1776
1: yes we really do
0: (laughs) or maybe french and indian and then 1776
1: to the point where i once had a student group who informed me that the pilgrims wrote the declaration of independence and i was like wow no there's like 150 years in there that's yeah, no, not at all. Anyway, the, I think the reason we skip over King Philip's War, honestly, is because w- we don't come out in a great light. Like, the white people do not come out in a really good light, uh, our, our ancestors. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel... And it's also really ambiguous. And, you know, American history tends not to like ambiguity in any real way. Uh, but... That leads us back to why do we have, like, why where does this idea of the first Thanksgiving come from?
0: So that's a great question. So it's interesting to me, especially the more we do this podcast and we've talked about kind of where holidays and things come from, is you would sort of think that it would get picked up in the founding era, that around 1776 or in the dawn of, of, of the United States, that they would cling to this Thanksgiving, but they don't. Uh, it really comes up in the 1850s, the late 1850s, and it's basically footnoted. It's footnoted in a history of the Plymouth Colony as sort of, and there was a great feast known as the first Thanksgiving. And a few people latch on to this phrase, including a newspaper editor, a a woman who wrote for uh, magazines as they exist in the 19th century called Sarah Josepha Hale. And she writes for, it has a hilarious name, uh, and I want to make sure I get it right, it's like Goody's Lady's Book, Goody's ladies Book. And she reads about this feast and she decides it would be the perfect model for a national holiday. And so she is going to put in this recipe article, turkey, stuffing, and pumpkin pie. Those are the first time those three things are listed as Thanksgiving foods. And then she starts lobbying President Abraham Lincoln at the beginning of the Civil War to create this holiday. And you can see why Lincoln thinks it's a good idea. The nation is torn apart. We are fighting brother versus brother. And the idea of this moment to reflect on our past, to look at a moment where we came together, is very powerful propaganda for wartime. And so Lincoln will be the first to declare Thanksgiving an annual holiday. But it doesn't really pick up immediately. Because, you know, after the war, there's sort of this idea of of reconciliation and brotherhood sort of goes away. And it's not until we get to the 1880s, the 1890s, and the early 1900s that we start to see this regular celebration of Thanksgiving. And if you think about what's going on in this country, Reconstruction trying to assert uh, a certain narrative of what this country is, trying to whitewash a colonial past, and then a huge wave of immigration. So you have all these new people coming. And so the idea of having this clear, shared cultural history moment is very, very appealing. So it makes a lot of sense to me that Thanksgiving starts to become as popular as it does in that time. And then it is Franklin D. Roosevelt who makes it uh, sort of this regular thing. And I love Roosevelt's reasoning because it's like, well, first of all, it's the Great Depression, right? People are bummed. They need something to really join. So he's like, uh, Thanksgiving is now the The third Thursday of November. And uh, the reason we're doing that is we want to start the holiday Christmas shopping to jumpstart the economy in the Great Depression. And people got so mad about it being the third Thursday that he had to push it back to the fourth Thursday, two years later because people thought the Christmas season was too long, which is humorous to me now as they every you know November 1st the
1: day the minute the Halloween costumes go into the uh, we go
0: into full Christmas but there is like so many things in our, our history this uh, little bit of commercialism around Thanksgiving as well and why it now falls when it falls. But I love this idea that FDR made it the third week and everybody was like too soon, too soon, my man.
1: Push it back a week.
0: So that's sort of how it comes about. And I I think it's always important to note that so many things we think of as longstanding American traditions or things that have been something Americans have celebrated for years almost exclusively come from the last 150 years, if not less. And they often come about at times where the country is in strife and we're looking to join around a shared moment or a shared history, even if that history is it necessarily accurate.
1: <laughs> it is it's really we talked about this with Columbus like finding some sort of focal point in the past. You know, you can see the romanticization of it. This is our founding myth. This is where we all come from. It's all very delightful and we we were the ones who came in peace and religious tolerance and, you know, that I just it seems like a really great narrative that you can sort of build on. And the Pilgrims were You know, you just kind of shave a little bit off of how religious and, you know, weird they were. And here you go. you got a great holiday for you. The trouble is, it's just not really true. (laughs) Yeah, so that's where the, the idea of the first Thanksgiving really kind of comes from. They basically, they don't quite make it up out of whole cloth, but it's very adapted, I think.
0: Very much so.
1: Also, please note, dear listeners, that there is not a moment that Becca cannot draw Lincoln into. (laughs) Let's just mention that for everyone.
0: This one's pretty clear cut. It's also allegedly where we get the turkey pardoning of the presidential turkey. Probably apocryphal, but the story goes that they were going to eat a turkey for Thanksgiving and poor Tad, the youngest Lincoln child, was so upset by the idea of them killing the sweet little turkey that he had come to, to love, that Lincoln gives him a pardon. The story is likely apocryphal, but it's a cute one. Um, we've had a presidential turkey pardon since George H.W. Bush.
1: Do you know those turkeys stay in the Willard Hotel? Like, they get yeah. a suite in the Willard. These are turkeys. And now turkeys are a bigger animal than you think they are, but they're turkeys. And they get a suite at taxpayer expense. That's all I'm saying. Like, that's a lot. <laughs> Two of them because the president has to pick one can't just have one to pardon. The president has to pick one uh, and pardons one. And the other one, I don't know what happens the other one.
0: I think they both go on to live very happy turkey lives at like the the nature preserve they go to.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do. And they all have (laughs) stupid names like stuffing and cornbread.
0: So that is the real story of of Thanksgiving. And you, you have once again illuminated me. I think one of the pluses that can come from this holiday today is I do think in the last few decades, we've started to use Thanksgiving to explore a better understanding of the Native people, the first people, understanding a little bit more about what their experience was like, which I think is is important to understanding the story of America. We can't really understand the story of our country without understanding the people who populated this land.
1: I think it's important to discuss the origins of Thanksgiving because it i mean it is propaganda and it really is sort of promoting this one specific view of where america comes from I think, I mean, it's a great holiday. I am personally in favor of any holiday where they want me to eat stuffing and pumpkin pie and turkey on the same day. Like, I'm really there for that. But I also think it's worth taking a beat on Thanksgiving to talk about where this holiday comes from and how we have conceived it and how you would feel if you were present-day Native American, how Thanksgiving feels to you. What does that feel like?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's not a lot of places in D.C. to... I think reflect on Thanksgiving history, but for our listeners in New England, you can visit Plymouth. There's a living history experience there. You can see the Mayflower too, the replica boat, and uh, that's something I definitely recommend if you're in the New England region and haven't visited Plymouth. I think they do an excellent job. uh, There is Wapanoag homestead, so there is, I think, a really balanced look at the history, and they're very proud of sharing, I think, the real experience of what it was like. Uh, coming and settling in this wilderness among among people that were already here.
1: Right, you can see Plymouth Rock, which is still there. They've got a little like temple around it. Uh, that you can see the uh, original landing spot in Provincetown and Plymouth Plantation, the living history. There's a bunch of living history like that. There's Sturbridge Village. There's Mystic Village. New England is full of like charming things like that. That's what makes it really great. And so that's us. That's the first Thanksgiving.
0: I just love you debunking all of our holidays. We're just gonna make Rebecca debunks blank a series.
1: No, I'm not tackling Christmas, guys. That's <laughs> that is beyond my skill level. Actually, That's... we
0: are gonna tackle Christmas, but in a fun way. In a few weeks, we'll talk about Christmas fun at the White House.
1: I'm not debunking Christmas. How about that? We're gonna we're gonna leave that to the religious we scholars. We deserve Thank Christmas this
0: year, Rebecca. I deserve Christmas.
1: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> really do (laughs) yes so speaking of coming up to christmas we are going to talk about christmas we are going to talk about we have been promising since we started this pod i think we've been promising uh an episode about warren harding and we're doing it this is going to be our special christmas gift to everybody including ourselves like we're well i should say our holiday gift uh to everyone uh including ourselves uh the warren harding episode it's going to be lit you guys i'm ready.
0: It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be PG thirteen, guys.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> it's not, not suitable for course. young years. We're ready.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, so anyway, that's coming up. We're gonna talk about Christ- uh the holidays in DC. We're gonna talk about the best New Year's Eve party in history. We're gonna talk about a bunch of other things in December. You guys are the best for coming along and listening to our pod. Um, please, as always, keep in touch. Uh, if you have ideas for our uh, January episodes, our February episodes, we'd be happy to listen. Uh, we, You can get in touch with us. We are on email at tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We are on the Facebooks and the Twitters uh, at Tour Guide Tell.
0: When this episode airs, we will be coming up to Small Business Saturday and Cyber Monday. So if you want to support a small business and shop online so you can do it distance and not be in crowds or standing in big groups or standing in line, you can shop at our merch shop. We've got t-shirts, stickers, tote bags, home gear. If there's something you see and you want it a little different, send us an email. Um, We can always uh, customize and tweak as needed, Uh, but your purchases help keep us going so we're so supportive of that also if you're liking the podcast we would love to see your reviews particularly uh, on the itunes podcast store so if you have a chance to drop a review if you put your twitter handle or your name or anything in that we're going to give you a shout out so be sure to leave a review and leave a little bit of something for us to shout you out and we will definitely do that but thank you as always and thank you of course to our patrons our patrons keep this podcast going if you are looking for a way to keep supporting the pod or to support a local business keep some tour guides going for as little as three dollars a month you can have access to early episodes behind the scenes episodes video episodes uh, special discounts to use in the shop and more so we love our patrons and uh, we hope that if you've been thinking about becoming a patron i think the holiday season is the perfect time
1: thank you guys so very much
0: thank you guys so much have a safe and wonderful thanksgiving and we will see you next time Yes,
1: bye. Bye. Tour Guide
0: Tello is researched, recorded, edited, and mixed by Becca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Dan King, and Candan Arseniega. All tour guides with free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. Help support us and get some special perks by becoming a patron. And if you don't want to sign up for our monthly commitment, you can also send us a virtual tip on Venmo at tourguidetellall or get some tour guide tell All swag from the merch store, all linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.